Welcome back to Bush School Uncorked. Uh, we are recording or taping live again at Downtown Uncorked. So thanks again to our hosts for giving us a space to have these conversations. We have a number of people in the audience. Many thanks to y'all for being here today. And we have a wonderful panel. There's five of us. We convinced a whole three people to come with us today, Greg. I think that's pretty uh, pretty impressive. And today we, um, uh, we're going to start out with a conversation with Professor Kent Portney. And uh, he's our honored guest today. And then as part of our panel, we're going to have Professors Rob Greer and Professors Ann Bowman uh, join us in for a, a rowdy conversation at the tail end. And also feel free, panel, if you uh, just have something that you can't keep in and you would like to ask of Dr. Portney as we're getting started, certainly feel free to jump in. All right. I'm going to shift to Kent now, if that's okay. Um, so I thought maybe we would talk a little, start first by letting you introduce yourself and what your position is at the Bush School and then a little bit of your own intellectual history, the things you're interested in, and then I want to shift to talking a little bit about your institute. But uh, maybe again telling us a little bit about you. Okay. Thanks for having me, Justin, and uh, Professor Gauz, thank you for, for arranging this to happen. Really appreciate it. I've been at the Bush School for almost five years now. Uh, I came about the same time as both uh, Justin and Greg uh, came. I'd like to credit um, uh, Professor Bowman with um, my, my being here. Um, so if you want somebody to credit or to blame, uh, she's, she's the one. I picked him up at the airport. Oh, really? Yeah, That's go. still the deal right there. I think I've known you longer than anybody else on, the, on the faculty. So. Uh, uh, even though she went to the University of Florida, I went to Florida State. We're, we're it's good you could overcome those ancient well, yes, hatreds. Exactly, exactly. It's, uh, it's one of our great accomplishments, I think. <laughs> Um, I, uh, my own personal research for uh, like 20 years now has been on urban sustainability, sustainable cities, primarily in the United States and Canada. I've done research in lots of other areas, in, uh, including uh, public participation, analyzing uh, systems of neighborhood associations and some other related issues. Uh, but urban sustainability is really at the heart of what I've been doing the last, really the last 20 years. I'm a professor in the Department of Public Service and Administration, and I'm the director of the Institute for Science, Technology, and Public Policy at the Bush School. Uh, the Institute um, conducts uh, primary research in lots of different areas and practically any area that involves science and technology issues on one side and public policy on the other. We, we feel like we have license to, uh, to, to get into um, research on any of those areas. Uh, right now, we've got at least a dozen different major projects underway. All of the projects we do at the Institute are team-based, and they're all multidisciplinary. Almost all involve uh, scholars and researchers fr from outside of the Bush School, as well as others in, in the Bush School. Um, I'd be happy to talk about what some of those are if you want. Uh, mm -hmm. We hope that most of them are funded from outside resources or from some internal grants. Uh, but we pretty much do have to limit ourselves to what we can get money to, to support. Um, that's always a major constraint. I keep telling the dean, you know, we need more money from the, the dean's office to support our research. But How does that go? It, it usually doesn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> he tells you you can only eat what you kill. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So for people who might not know what types of grants the Institute might get to bring in money, what types of funding sources have you found and what types of uh, projects is the institute a part of? Maybe just give us a, a few of uh, a few of the types of grants that uh, you're on. The um, outside granting agencies that we uh, compete in are the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, 
we have a, a grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, internally, we have both a, a T3 grant and an X grant from the provost's office. Uh, so those are the kinds of things. There are a variety of others. Over the years, we've had grants from the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, from National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, from NASA, from other others as well. But uh, and, you, and you partner with other colleges or uh, Texas A&M, right? Oh that's yes, one of the that's one of the signature elements of Absolutely. ISDBP. Uh, all of our projects are multidisciplinary and involve people from School of Engineering, from uh, the business, the, the Mays Business School, from uh, the uh, College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, a lot of people, a lot of projects with with AgriLife Research and AgriLife Extension. So, um. so I imagine that there, then the audience would probably see this as well. There's a lot of issues that center around science, technology, and public policy, and so I imagine the institute would have a hard time addressing all of them, even <laughs> though you're open yeah. to the intersect of of those in any ways that are interesting. But what if, what, what is, is there anything the Institute kind of specializes in, that some specific long-term projects or groups of people you have working together? I know, uh, for example, we've done some stuff on the water energy food nexus, mm -hmm. some stuff that, that, that we've done together on that. I know we've talked about this Resilient Cities project. I know that there's some, some specialized projects specifically in water, given the unique water challenges to Texas. So could you maybe give me an example of a few projects that... Uh, kind of capture some of the things the Institute is focusing on or some of the work that you're doing? Well, you actually captured a, a good bit of it. Uh, I'm an informed we've been, host. We've been doing work <laughs> on water-related policies and programs, including the Water Energy Food Nexus. As you probably know, the Texas A&M has over 150 different scholars working on some aspect of the Water Energy Food Nexus. And it turned out that nobody was particularly interested in studying the governance of water, energy, and food. So as soon as we figured that out, we jumped into that, that void, and we now think of ourselves as being the place, not just at A&M, but the place everywhere, anywhere in the country that, is, that has a major project on the water, energy, food, nexus governance. We have a project on, um, uh, we did a project uh, studying the uh, Texas groundwater um, uh, conservation districts. My, one of my classes worked on that. Uh, that project. So water figures uh, prominently in a lot of what we do. Also, um, got, we've developed a specialty in biomedical engineering and policy, specifically focused on remote sensing devices to monitor people's health. We're part of the, the Texas A&M uh, ERC project on uh, remote sensing health of health uh, indicators. indicators yeah. Yeah. Um, where the Engineers are designing these devices that can be worn by people, implanted in people, and we are doing the studies of the regulation of those of those uh, devices and the policies that underlie those, and the social science side of it. Which is why would anybody ever want to have one of these things implanted in them? That you know, his insurance company ever going to pay for these things and think, fun things like that? So Arnie or, Pedlitz, or is the insurance company going to make you maybe. have one of those in you before they will write a policy? Yeah, that's right. And of course, uh, that immediately raises issues about privacy, because if you have a, a device implanted in you and it's broadcasting information about you in real time to some doctor or some doctor's office, how do you protect people's privacy? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the people who design the medical devices don't really think, like to think about those issues, but they know they have to. So, you know, this, this conversations Kent and I have had over the years, you know, 
him talking about doing work with uh, with engineers, and I just didn't hardly believe him that they weren't thinking about these governance and policy issues. And I've started looking around at some of this autonomous vehicle stuff, and when you start kind of having conversations, it really is, it's an afterthought, if it's a thought at all, it's just a race to kind of actually create the technology and make it a useful tool, right. how we might use it, uh, and what are some of the governance concerns, uh, definitely isn't at the forefront That's of their right. minds. That's yeah. right. So one of the um, other areas we've gotten into, I mentioned the U.S. Department of Agriculture grant, that is to support analysis uh, related to what we call gene drives. It's the use of gene editing technologies to change the genes of, I call them critters, uh, <laughs> agricultural pests, so that you put some critters out into the population and it changes the whole population, the genetics of the whole population. So it could in involve, um, in our case, uh, the mosquito that promises to carry the Rift Valley fever. Not Zika, not, not any of the other viruses, but Rift Valley fever. Rift Valley fever is a potential problem for agriculture in Texas because if it were to show up here, as it has in Africa and South America, it could wipe out the cattle industry in a matter of weeks. And so wow. ranchers are pretty pretty concerned about that. Uh, so we're doing work on that. We're, we're doing work on uh, uh, the, the bull weevil, the Indian meal moth. Did you ever get, Have you ever gotten moths in your, like your flour or your oatmeal? Have you ever... Ann, have you ever gotten... Uh, yes. <laughs> I, just, I had to wake Anna. She seemed like she was fading on us here. Does your voice do that? You know, does it do that to the students, too? Does yes, it lull it them right to sleep? Yeah, yeah. I have to promise to... <laughs> I wired the chairs with electrodes, and if they fall, give them a sack. You know. um, so uh, the uh, Indian meal moth is what that's called. And it's a big... It's not just a consumer problem. It's a problem for... for growers and, and wholesalers and, and others. And then the f finally, um, uh, we're interested in uh, uh, something called pigweed, which is a, a pernicious weed that crowds out food crops. Right now, the only way to deal with it is by using copious amounts of Roundup on the crops. And, and of course, Roundup, you, you've probably heard in the news that being exposed to Roundup is not such a good thing. Uh, and uh, uh, the pigweed is developing resistance to it, and uh, so farmers are very anxious about how to deal with pigweed and once uh, once Roundup doesn't work or it can't be used anymore. So those that's a, an interesting project. I mean, we're dealing with entomologists who are the ones who actually do the gene editing of the critters, and uh, talking to them, they they know they need to worry about regulatory issues. They know they need to worry about about how people will accept or not accept. These technologies, you know, parallel to GMOs, you know, people don't want GMOs. Well, if they don't want GMOs, are they going to want food that has been exposed in some way to these critters that have had their genetics changed? These are open questions, and we're the only ones really researching it anywhere in the country. So we're very happy and proud yeah. about that. Yes. Yeah, that's all kinds of things that maybe wouldn't be immediately obvious, the types of governance questions that needed to be addressed. Exactly. What, what kind of things does the uh, Institute do to go about thinking about how to address some of these uh, governance issues? Do you, you know, survey the citizens? Do you work with the stakeholders? What, uh, what types of things? Above. All the above. Talk to, to uh, regulators, government officials, stake other stakeholders. We have uh, a lot of our projects have stakeholder engagement processes and stakeholder surveys. Um, we're doing uh, lots of interviews uh, for the Gene Drive project with uh, uh, 
the agricultural industry as well as farm workers and others who uh, are first line, you know, uh, promise to be first line uh, exposed to, to these things. So uh, to, other, to other projects, uh, we have uh, actually three different projects on resilient cities or urban resilience. Professor Bowman is involved in one of those. Um, the one I like the most of those three, of course, Professor Vedlitz is dealing with the other two. So we call this one project Resilient Cities Policies and Programs Project Online, which gives us the acronym RC3PO. Which is great. And for so the audience, have, the rest of you, you know, on the recording, they can't that's see. Our, that's our, mo- our uh, RC3PO. We have a, <laughs> which I was pretty and, excited and about. And even, no, I just stole it from the internet. So, <laughs> so, so the podcast it. is uh, only, uh, it's not visual. So we no, want I to explain. I didn't, the, I didn't do that. We want to explain <laughs> to, to the listeners that there's a picture of the Star Wars character C-3PO on the right. on I mean, the. can see what I was showing? No, believe it or not. I'm sure I'll get a cease and desist letter as soon as we put that. Lucasfilms is going to be on you pretty quick. But um, I should also say, even more importantly, that Professor Bowman is involved in this. Of course, she goes by the name Anne O'Malley Bowman. So we've given her the name uh, A.O.B. Juan Kenobi. (laughs) That's her her name. Also, another Star Wars reference. Yeah. Just in case people were confused. (laughs) You have to explain. It. I know, I know. That says something about my comedian efforts. Well, so, what, can look it up. What, what types of things are you doing with? The, so, you've had a lot of experience in urban sustainability, which was one of the things you mentioned early on. Resilient city seems pretty of uh, the ones you've mentioned most clearly right in your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. So, what does that project? Uh, what does that project look like? What are y'all trying to accomplish with the Resilient Cities project? Uh, what we're trying to do is um, get a sense from a large number of cities around the country what kinds of policies and programs they've actually created, enacted, and implemented in an effort to try to become more resilient. We know a lot about what cities are doing in planning processes, but we don't know what those planning processes have produced in the way of policies and programs. And we need to understand that before we can begin to understand the so what. What do do they get? How do they manage to become more resilient if they do become more resilient? So we've spent a lot of time over the last uh, six or eight months studying the websites of the 101 largest cities in the United States. To, and we've got, we created a bit of a checklist, if you will, of policies and programs. How many items are on that now, like 150? Yeah, yes, I mean, it's massive. It's 150 different possible policies and programs. And uh, we had a team of, of students uh, working to understand what those city websites were telling us about the policies and programs. The second part of that project is we're going to survey the officials in those cities and ask them questions about the policies and programs they have. And uh, we're going to be able to uh, put those two sources of information together and to develop a comprehensive understanding of the policies and programs. It really does beg the question, though, what do you mean by resilient? What makes a city, what, what, a city that is resilient versus one that isn't? What's the difference? Well, it's a, it's a not a simple question to answer. The literature, if you will, on resilience is all over the place. For some people, it's, it's uh, making sure you have critical infrastructure that can resist uh, uh, disasters, hurricanes, storms, earthquakes, and such things. Sometimes it's defined as the ability to bounce back from those kinds of, of, of issues. Sometimes it's defined as what 
planners like to call bouncing forward to improve using those disasters as an opportunity to improve on the way things were before. Um, so we've tried to create this checklist of 150 different policies and programs to cover the whole swath of possibilities given what people will say that resilience is. Certainly critical infrastructure is a big part of it. You know, what have cities done to try to improve their critical infrastructure to uh, be able to resist uh, the, the impact of, of disasters? Uh, what kinds of preparation have they taken? Uh, and so on. It, it would t take me quite a while to go through the 150 policies and programs. <laughs> we, got plenty of, we got plenty of time. Just this <laughs> I'll ask Professor Bowman to do that because my, my mind can't quite keep those all in my in there at the same time. So I guess as the cities have differences in what they report as being resilient. I mean, to each. Well, we ask them on the survey what their definition is, so we get a sense of how they see it, how constrained or broad it might be. Oh, that's so, really interesting. Yes. And you'll be able to t then be able to put the strategies with it based on exactly. how they're defining it. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So um, I think we got resilient cities. We got water. Is there uh, any other uh, any other things, particularly from the institute or from your research, before we broaden up to the panel about uh, maybe thinking about science and technology policy more broadly? Um, is there anything else that we should hit on um, since you have the stage? Well, the only thing other thing I would mention is that uh, we haven't had the opportunity to do much in the way of energy-related uh, pro, uh, projects, uh, but we're hoping to change that uh, in the not-too-distant future. We, we're contemplating doing a couple projects, one of which would be involve comparing the renewable energy initiatives in San Antonio and in Austin. Uh, both San Antonio and Austin have in, embarked on very aggressive uh, and ambitious renewable energy policies, um, but nobody has really studied what they do, how they do it, what I call the business case, why they were able to do it and, makes, and make financial sense doing that. So we're hoping to get a project done on, on that. And we also have a project that we're contemplating and in investigating the uh, social and political impacts of fracking. Can we say fracking here? Is that allowed fracking? Yeah. The impact of this is Texas. We love fracking. Right. Of course, you <laughs> yeah. can say fracking. Well, some people require that you say hydraulic fracturing. Oh, hydraulic okay. fracking or hydraulic yeah. fracturing. And, right. Yeah. So, there are two two cities in Texas that have experienced pretty substantial impacts from the boom and bust cycles that are associated with uh, uh, natural gas and petroleum exploration, and that is Midland and Odessa. And we want to do a project that works with the local officials in in those two cities to see how the impacts can be mitigated so that uh, people who are there are not detrimentally affected or minimize the effects of, of fracking uh, on, on them. So those are two things that we have down the line. We're also talking uh, with a colleague in Professor Cause's uh, department about uh, a cybersecurity uh, project, so that might come to pass too. Well, that means we're just going to have to check back in and have you as a guest again in, uh, you know, in the uh, fall and see how how these projects are coming along. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Kent. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, with that, we'll wrap up this segment, take a brief break, and shift to the panel. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. We're going to shift to the panel discussion. And as always, I'll let Greg take the lead on this. Yeah. This is uh, this is fascinating stuff. I I think that the whole idea of resiliency. 
it, it sounds like a good government concept. Who could be against resiliency? But there have to be choices that, that, that are made. And some people might see resiliency as, we got to prepare for the terrorist attack, right? Some people might see resiliency as, we've got to prepare for what the horrors of climate change are going to bring on us. Those of us who live down here in Texas, close to Houston, I mean, we look at what happened with, with Hurricane Harvey in, in, in Houston, and you know, you might think of resiliency as a, as a natural disasters thing, but other people might see resiliency as uh, a, 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 you know, we have to prevent a cyber attack from the Chinese or the Russians that might, that might disrupt our, 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 our critical infrastructures, right? So I, I want to I, I see if I can get you guys to talk a little bit about how partisanship comes into this notion of resiliency. Where are the divisions? Where are the arguments? And, I, and we've heard, we've heard a, Kent, we've heard a lot from you today. So I thought, I thought that we'd start maybe with Rob Greer, who is also part of the, the, the projects at ISTPP and works on, on, on cities and, and, and issues in cities. Rob, is, is there partisanship here? Where are the divisions? You know, it just sounds like everybody should be in favor of resilience. So there are certainly divisions um, when it comes to some of the uh, root causes, right? You mentioned climate change, right? There are certain partisan divides on uh, on climate change and uh, its causes and its effects, right? Um, what we've seen over the last couple of years, though, is a, a real shift um, in conjunction with a, sh with a, a recognition by the business community um, that that no matter what the causes are, right, the effects are real, uh, and and those effects have real financial and human impacts. Uh, that cities have to prepare for. So uh, one interesting project that I've been working on is sort of the recognition of credit rating agencies that uh, cities that aren't preparing, uh, that aren't taking these 150 <laughs> possible steps to become more resilient uh, are therefore higher risk and that risk is then priced into their bonds um, and they have, to, they have to pay for it, right? And that's a real thing that they're paying uh, in, their, in their debt service payments every year. So um, they, we know Moody's and S&P and the other uh, Fitch, the, the big rating agencies have come out and said, you know, you, you need to be preparing yourselves for these risks, um, climate-related risks, as well as uh, you know, security-related risks. And if you're not, we'll take notice and, and you'll be penalized for that. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so while there is still a partisan divide, uh, the, the market has, has spoken that, that you need to be preparing for these things. So, there, so there's, there's not a difference between Republican-run cities and Democratic-run cities? I mean, if the, bond, if the, if the, bond, uh, the lords of the bond market come to you and tell you you have to do these things, you do these things. So uh, are cities raising taxes to do this? That's a good question, Anne. Do you have a... Um, well, uh, let me kind of get to the answering that by a little circuitously. The first thing that I would start with is kind of the organization of cities to actually address the resilience question. There's a debate in the literature whether it's resilience or resiliency. Just, you know, which resiliency is the European right. word. Well, then we're not going to use that in Texas. <laughs> resilience it is. Resilience it is. Yes. So wh where, how, how do you organize for that in, within city government? Do you have a chief resilience officer, a CRO, if you will? Or do you uh, actually work at the departmental level and, and kind of uh, integrate resilience into everything that's going on regardless of... Of, of the department, and we are seeing different models for that. It really does. It really does vary. There, in in terms of funding, there's some outside money. There's some there's some foundations that are very interested in this issue, and they are providing some seed money to local governments to begin to address it. But in terms of of raising money for resilience, uh, no, of uh, raising taxes for resilience, no. I mean, you raise taxes for something else, and in 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 effect, become more resilient as you do. But the topic really, the issue hasn't galvanize uh, the public in the sense that we must become more resilient. They just say we must do something about 
flooding, uh, and therefore become more resilient. But I, I guess I, w I also want to add to this this whole question of levels of government and which level of government is primarily responsible. It's the cities that have to do this, of course, that have to take these actions. But should the burden fall, the financial burden fall upon them, they have the least ability to, to raise revenue. Uh, so, so typically you're going to look to state governments to begin to um, stimulate uh, local governments in some way to, to take up these issues by oftentimes providing funding, grants, loans, whatever it might be. So. Financially, it's if it ends up with the cities, it's going to be too much of a challenge for them to really address. So, so is there resistance at the state level to? Well, I mean, there's almost always resistance yeah. at the state level to doing what cities say they need right. to, they need to have done. Well, there's always a tension or mm -hmm. tug of war between states and their, and their municipalities mm -hmm. concerning who's going to pay for what, right. and uh, sometimes a lot of things fall through the cracks. Professor Bowman is the is the real expert on this. Uh, but you see that played out in resilience issues all the time, disaster planning and, and uh, uh, you know, who's paying for first responders and, and so on. Let me go, go back to your, your uh, question about the uh, divide, the political divides. There, there are a number of them that you see present almost everywhere, and, and they include things like um, if you want your city to be uh, resistant to uh, severe damage in a storm, you probably have to consider how your land is being used, right? And so in, in Houston, in, in Harris County, uh, which experienced so much flooding as a result of Hurricane Harvey, a lot of people saying, well, one of the problems is that city of Houston allowed homes to be built in floodplains. And because there was no zoning in Houston. Because there's, there's very limited use of, of zoning. And it's not just about, you know, should you use zoning? It's about... Um, who gets to decide whether you're going to build a house or not? And in Texas, as you know, individual liberty tends to be something that takes precedent over, you know, government intervention or planning or zoning or related issues. So if you have a piece of land and it's in a floodplain, who gets to decide what, whether houses get built there? In Texas, we tend to think that it ought to be developers, not, not the government, right? Other places... The opposite is true. The government will step in and say, no, you can't build homes on a floodplain. But that's, that's something people disagree about. It's a divide. Another one is always about who, who pays how much, right? I like to tell a story about, you know, 20 years ago, before Superstorm Sandy hit New Jersey and New York City, the city of New York knew full well what its vulnerabilities were, lower Manhattan in particular. They did a comprehensive study that showed that they needed about 40 to 50 billion dollars to prepare for the possibility of a major storm. And of course, their response was, we don't have 40 to 50 billion dollars we can spend on this. They tried to get the state to pay for it in Albany, and the state said, no, we're not paying for that. They tried to get pri uh, private sector to pay some of it. The private sector said, no, we're not going to pay for that. So nothing got done. They had a plan. And nobody ever did anything about it. And then Superstorm Sandy hit and caused billions of dollars worth of damage, right? So somebody ended up paying for that damage, and they're still vulnerable, right? And so now they're starting so to... The, so that. they're still vulnerable because in reaction to the storm, they only did cleanup, they didn't get yeah. resilient? Well, not as resilient. They didn't do the things that you would expect them to do in response. What I like to point to is in New Jersey, north, northern New Jersey, just outside of Manhattan. 
a good part of the Jersey Shore was wiped out by Superstorm Sandy. And immediately a group formed that was called Restore the Shore, right? Where all they wanted to do was put things back, the boardwalk, put it back the way it was. And Governor Christie, the governor of New Jersey at the time, visited them and said, you know, we're going to help you put things back the way they were, except we're going to be smarter about this time. For the boardwalk, we're not going to use wood, we're going to use concrete. That was smarter? I don't think that's what people who talk about resilience have in mind, but he thought that that was the way to deal with resilience, okay? So, and in fact, they did rebuild it with concrete, so. So, so is Houston doing it better? I was just on a panel at the Southern Political Science Association, and and one of the papers that was presented was um, really analyzing the city of Houston and its response to Hurricane Harvey. And... Um, the suggestion from the researchers, and it was a it was a political scientist and um, some kind of a soil scientist person, um, and they argued that new development is going to be more is going to be smarter than it was. Uh, old development uh, are they ever going to retrofit? Are they going to re, you know? That was unclear. But with new development, they are putting in uh, additional regulations. I use the word. Lightly, you, uh, regulations to where they design, where they put storm cuts, where they do the curb cuts and the and the drains and the things that were really linked to. Because, you know, back to Kent's point about about floodplain. If you're not going to build in the floodplain, you're not going to build much in Houston, uh, because so much of the city is yeah, part of the floodplain. And so, as a consequence, you've got to do things. Okay, we're in a floodplain now. How do we mitigate that to some degree? So a lot of it is where they put these retention ponds and where they locate all these drains. Yeah. Uh, Bottom line, if you're listening in Houston, buy above the drain, okay? You make sure your land is above the drain. That's a great That's piece tip. of advice. Yeah. Maybe it's a good practical advice. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's always know, like news yeah. you can use on Bush Bowl on court. But Rob, Rob brought up the idea of the, of the bond market. So where's the private sector? In the, I mean, where's the insurance companies? Is? Why, why, would, why would an insurance company write a policy for a house that's been built in the floodplain has been wiped out three times, and three times they've, re- they've paid the, the owner to, well, to they, rebuild. The answer is they won't. Um, the insurance comp- private insurance companies have gotten very good at factoring these kinds of things into their, uh, their calculations of what the rates should be. So even if you can buy flood insurance, your rates are going to be very high. Of course, at the same time, the federal government, the federal has government will flood subs- insurance yeah, well, and subsidizes people's right. decisions to buy houses in floodplains, you know. And there's always a lot of debate, that's another one of these divides, about whether the federal government should be offering flood insurance to help subsidize and underwrite people's bad decisions, right? So, of course, there are limitations, and people don't always get the benefits from flood insurance that they think they're going to get, but the question is still there. Which which builds on uh, Dr. Roman's point about levels of government, right? And so these are uh, municipalities that allow development in certain areas um, with the assumption that the federal government is going to be offering a insurance plan that will cover them because the private market will not. Uh, but the federal flood insurance program has gone bankrupt, almost gone bankrupt several times uh, and is a constant, is constantly under threat because it's, it's not solvent, right? So it requires federal appropriations to keep it afloat, uh, which is sort of an indirect keep, subsidy keep to... Keep it afloat? Is that uh, that's right. That's <laughs> a, no pun intended uh, or maybe intended. Uh, so... So the Houston gets to benefit from that because then they see more development because of an indirect subsidy from right. the federal government. Exactly. That doesn't make any sense at all. 
So there's yeah. welcome so, to the federal system. Well, so, That's so, right, more so wishful that's, news. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> news you can use. The government doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, so, how big do you have to be to be resilient? We, we're in Bryan, Texas, right now. How many people live in Bryan? Eighty thousand, ninety. Brazos Valley, the whole Brazos Valley. What are we? A quarter of a million, right? Uh, can we? Can the can can the Brazos Valley be resilient? Or is that something that is? It requires a scale for for revenue and for organization and administration that says that you know a place like Houston can uh, can try to tackle these things, but a quarter of a million people in the Brazos Valley, we can't do it. You have to do it. Uh, we have critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We have to. We have okay, to we talk about we've talked about critical infrastructure a lot. What's the critical infrastructure here? Power plants, okay. uh, uh, clean water treatment okay, water facilities, treatment. Okay. hospitals, hospitals okay. uh, and depending on your definition, communication. Um, so uh, we don't have any nuclear the, facilities if, or if anything the internet, like that. If the internet goes down, no podcasting. Well, so that's, we have to, it's a real problem. <laughs> right, right, it's a real problem. That's super critical. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's very important. <laughs> Before you, I mean, you have to know your vulnerabilities and so you assess your vulnerabilities. And so we may not have in the Brazos Valley the, the range of vulnerabilities that Houston might, right. but given the, given the vulnerabilities, can, they, can, can this place be resilient? Yeah, and Rob's right. You, it has to be. And in some ways it's easier on a smaller scale, mm -hmm. right? The larger the city, the larger the metroplex, um, the more complicated these issues get because the systems become more intertwined, right? Oh, transportation would be another mm -hmm. critical infrastructure. Um, and so in DFW or in Austin, uh, their resilience programs, right, they, there's not, it's not clear to me anyways that there's an economy of scale to being resilient. Uh, mm -hmm. It gets more complicated, therefore it gets more expensive. So on a smaller scale, like in Bryan College Station, it's almost uh, easier to wrap your sort of hands around how to be resilient than it would be in a larger area. You said transportation. So what does that mean? What what does resilience of transportation mean? Does it just mean keeping the major roads open, or uh, yeah. we, we we have a little bit of public trans transit in the Brazos Valley, but I don't know if that's critical. Yeah, so if, for some people it might be right. Critical. A transportation expert would be able to to give you a much better definition, right? But um, mm. at the basic level, if your ambulances can't get two people and then back to the hospital, if your maintenance trucks can't get two transformers to get power back online, right? Then then it doesn't matter how resilient your power plant is or your, your you know, water treatment facility is, um, nobody can get to and from it and therefore you, you can't fix anything. So uh, transportation at a very basic level allows you to sort of fix anything else that's going wrong. Yeah. We're recording on what, the 29th of January, right? So just today the, the intelligence uh, officials of the United States testified before Congressional Committee uh, about the, the major threats that, that they perceive the United States faced. And cyber and cybersecurity was way up at the top, right? So, talk, can can you guys talk a little bit about what resilience in in the cyber world means? And here we're 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 kind of coming over into the international side because we see foreign uh, foreign sources of threat to our cybersecurity, but there's also there's also uh, resilience issues there too, right? So this is an interesting issue where, where they really start to overlap, right? We, it was not that long ago we saw the city of Atlanta was uh, subject to major cyber attacks and was holding people's, you know, uh, 
Logins ransom. <laughs> so, so really, I forget. I, 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 that rings a bell, but I forget the details. Fill me in. So I don't. I don't. I'm gonna be fuzzy on the details as well, right? But basically, the city of Atlanta, major organization, the largest yeah, yeah. city in the country, uh, probably in your study, right? Uh, Absolutely. Was uh, was under a cyber attack, uh, some version of a ransom sort of uh, attack, and uh, the it really shut down city operations. They couldn't. They couldn't do anything until they they sort of figured that out. Um, and so from a Sort of back to the conversation of what is resilient, right? We have both the um, policies in place to try to prevent things like that from happening, um, and then you have policies that uh, sort of gauge how you respond during the situation, and then post-situation, how do you prevent things like that from happening again or, or get back up to normal operating capacity? Uh, and so there are... there. Are how did the Atlanta story end? Do you remember? Um... They're still running today, so it went. Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. The city so, wasn't but, closed down. Uh, I, hear, I hear the Super Bowl is going to be yeah, there I think, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, this yeah. Sunday. So yeah, I guess I guess they're up and running. It, it didn't just sort of fall into a black hole or anything. Right, but right. Um, so so when you're when you're thinking about resilience from cyber attacks, um, right? We we think about national issues a lot, right? right? But but. These are sort of local government, municipal issues as well. Um, so this was just this was just some some hackers who were trying to to get some ransom, and we're going to reveal all sorts of social security numbers or something, and unless think, you give us money. Yeah, I don't think it's super clear at the at the time who the who the actor was. I, I, I don't think it is still to this day. To this day, not clear. Yeah, and you know the challenge for municipalities is they don't have the technical expertise. Right to be prepared or to respond in a in a comprehensive way, they have to rely on somebody else to do it. And I would say probably state governments are not far behind. We see that played out with uh, concerns about hacking into secretary of secretaries of states' uh, election, election databases right. and right. things like that. Um, we which, simply which is not a hypothetical problem. That's right. right. None of these things is totally hypothetical. I'm, I mean, so much of our infrastructure and our government services are reliant on uh, web-based services uh, that um, uh, everything's vulnerable from our power grid and who manages the power grid to our water systems and wastewater treatment systems. It's all vulnerable. And, and most of it, I'll add, owned by state and local entities, not right. federal entities, exactly. right? And so owned and operated. And so back to this level of governance issue, it may be a national level security priority, um, but in implementing those policies, these are these are local actors, sometimes very small special districts that, that are delivering wastewater treatment or, or responsible for a single sort of grid uh, for electricity. So um, it, when you're talking about sort of capacity to deal with these issues, uh, we think about it on a, on a national level, but implementing it is really at a local level. Well, thinking about it at the national level, I mean, this, if, if we go back to the national level, I mean, this really is an arms race, coming up with advanced cybersecurity tools to deal in that space. You know, there's this artificial intelligence arms race across the U.S. and China in particular, the two big players. Russia is playing a, a, a real role in ha hacking and cyber attacks. And so it's an open question of how to respond to that. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of dialogue on this, but some of the stuff I've been reading and thinking about, I mean, really the only way to keep up is to double down on basic research and double down on your investments in, uh, in computer science and your investments in the cybersecurity tools. Right. But that can't that can't be done at the municipal level, and it, it in most states it can't be done at the state level. Mm -hmm. I mean that has to be done at the federal level, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The amount of resources needed to that's always the challenge, yeah. right? Which is something we talk about doing. doing yeah. Trying to protect yourself from cyber attacks is very expensive. So I think that uh, is a nice spot to pause, and we do have a number of audience members, and we wanted to leave time for them. 
to ask some questions after taking the time to come out and be with us tonight. Um, so does the audience have, have any questions? Yes, sir. Uh, so going back to the resiliency question, um, Dr. Greer, you hit on it a little bit. Actually, everybody hit on it. In Houston, they've built up so far that they've kind of built themselves into a corner. I mean, they're in a bowl. There's not much more they can do outside of tearing up and starting all over. And then the smaller areas outside of Houston, the smaller mud districts, municipal utility districts, they don't have enough, they don't have the money to, to upgrade. They, uh, the, their wastewater treatment plants are vulnerable, and not just from cybersecurity, but from everything. Mm -hmm. And even the city of Houston doesn't have the money, doesn't have the funds available to you know, totally revamp the city to, to be resilient. So what steps can they take outside, you know, not just from a policy, from a, I'm an engineer, so I'm looking at this very practically, but what steps can they take right now to be, because Harvey's going to happen again, what can they do to lessen the impact of the next Harvey? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's a hard question. Um, some things can be done in terms of uh, market financing mechanisms. So the state has uh, a revolving loan fund set up for water infrastructure uh, Sorry. may feel like you should talk to the audience. I, I know. If you ask a question, I want to address we're, the question here. We're, but We're, we're mass communicating. Sorry. No, sorry. Um, so, so there are state revolving funds uh, that are available. Um, unfortunately, there, the need far exceeds the amount of funds that, that can be loaned out under that. They're the low-interest loans that are, that are backed by the state. The bond market has recognized this as well, and so you can get sort of certified um, green bonds now that go to a certain pool of investors who uh, want to put their money into projects that they know will contribute to sustainability issues, um, and, uh, and there could be some interest rate advantages to doing that. So, so the market has a few mechanisms. It's unclear at this time because they're so new how effective that will be what sort of cost savings will actually accrue to the MUDs or the cities. Um, uh, but we are starting to, to recognize that uh, from a market perspective and, and try to develop some tools. Uh, but you're absolutely right. They do not have the fiscal capacity to, to really make the investments necessary uh, to prepare for the next one, let alone keep up with, <laughs> with current demands, right? Uh, which, which, is, which is the issue right in front of them, the one they're more likely to, to solve. So I don't have any great answers for you. I, w I wish I did. How do you think is um, resilience also a function of democratic governance locally in the sense that how people are participating in addressing local salient issues? That's a great question, democracy. It does resilience require local democracy? Or does local democracy work against resilience because nobody wants changes in their backyard or everybody wants the boardwalk restored exactly right. as it was? Well, that's, that's a really good question. And uh, it's, it's a question that has been addressed in a lot of different ways. Uh, what I would point to is after, in the Jersey Shore case, after the group formed Restore the Shore, which just wanted to put everything back the way it was, not improving things, not getting uh, improving resilience or not... Uh, uh, protecting themselves, uh, a number of organizations got active and started meeting with community organizations and creating what they call scenario planning, mm -hmm. where they put to the people a number of different scenarios along with the costs and consequences of pursuing those scenarios, and they used those participatory processes to get people to buy into making significant changes that they didn't even think about. It, it, there's a nice little literature that documents... Uh, how those processes work, and it's very encouraging. But it takes somebody, it takes an institution, it takes a government to kind of get that whole thing organized. But, but was that government that started that? Yes. Or, so it, so was, it was local government? Metropolitan planning agencies, maybe. Me metropolitan, and they would mm -hmm. bring together almost like citizen juries to say, 
how do we how do we I would, think about this? It's not that formalized. Okay. It's community yeah. groups. It's neighborhood organizations. It's but it was a bottom-up process. Yes. It hasn't been specific to resilience issues, but there is a history of cities um, engaging in participatory budgeting, uh, specifically for capital projects. Uh, so they'll go out to neighborhoods and say, "We would we would spend you know a million dollars on." projects related to parks, um, but it's up to you to how you want to divvy that money up. And I wrote uh, a book about that once. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so we have the expert here. Yeah. I should what be was, talking about it. You should be talking what, about it. What was the name of that book, Professor Corner? The Rebirth of Urban Democracy. So The Rebirth of Urban Democracy, published by... Brookings Institution The Brookings Institutions <laughs> Press. So everyone take out their phones and you know, put, put that, that in. Win an award? It won a couple of awards. Okay. Yeah. Right. Thank, Thank you. you. There we are. There we are. Uh, and, and there are these things, old things called libraries. You could actually go and maybe get that book out of the library. You don't even have to order it online. I think you can buy it for like $3 on Amazon. Well, it's <laughs> even better. But what is, what is this library? It what will, is a library? It will improve your resilience to have a copy of that. Yeah, our library is critical infrastructure. I think we have time for one more before mm -hmm. we wrap up. Sure, please. Follow up to that as your friendly neighborhood librarian. How much of your resiliency study is looking at culture and looking at the social aspects? Because I would argue that the work I do is critical to resiliency, but perhaps that's my definition. Mm -hmm. So the question was, uh, how important of a role does culture play in thinking about resiliency? And, and is the library part of the critical infrastructure? <laughs> I like books. What do you think, Rob? Library? You write the book. <laughs> our, our project is in its infancy. But we are looking at social. We are looking at, at, at SOVI, the, the social vulnerability of communities. And, and some of the questions are specifically targeted to the impact on low-income groups or marginalized groups in the population. And we would argue, I think, that, that resili true resilience efforts really does need to identify vulnerable populations and, be, and, and address the needs that they might have, uh, rather than assume kind of a one-size-fits-all approach uh, would be effective. So if we looked at New Orleans, right, one of the impressions, one, as just somebody who was looking at, the, at, at, at uh, Hurricane Katrina in, in New Orleans, is that poorer people lived in lower places, right? The Lower Ninth kind of wiped out in New Orleans, and that was a, a, a poor African-American community in, in the city. But in Houston... It seemed to, I, I mean, Hurricane Harvey wiped out the rich and the poor, kind of irrespective of class differences. So in some, in some places, the rich build in, 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 in the bowls, and, and they get wiped out. So talk, and just to finish this off, talk. The rich have, have more capacity, in the phrase we right. used earlier, right. uh, in responding to that and, and fixing the problems they're addressing, right. whereas the They're insured, they've got the bank accounts. Yeah, yeah low-income populations. Right. Cultural question is a, a really good one, too. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it also determines... The current culture determines what types of options you have uh, based on kind of what the citizens are interested in and what types of things, what types of tools they would be okay with. And so, I, you know, even if it's not a direct point of kind of making sure our culture is resilient, it certainly informs the strategies and tools that you can use at the local level to to be resilient. Right. I think it's, it's not, right, it's not just the libraries. Are, are the schools part of the critical infrastructure? And then at Absolutely. some point you kind of ask yourself, where do you draw the line between the critical infrastructure and the only important, in, yeah, the important infrastructure that's not critical? Mm -hmm. I think roads do count, though. So to, to answer your question, libraries aren't typically added in sort of the, the standard sort of 
definition. Um, but it is a recognized sort of important contribution that we have to be able to disseminate information uh, and people have to be able to access information. And libraries are increasingly the place where a lot of uh, uh, communities do that. And so if you have if you have to get everybody registered for FEMA or if you have to, um, people need to be able to check their bank accounts or, or anything like that, and the, and the only place they have access to the internet is the library, right? then it starts to become a, a much bigger deal that your libraries are up and running as soon as possible. So, so I will say it's not completely ignored. Uh, good, good answer. So I'd like to thank the audience for coming out again for our second live taping and asking some questions. So many thanks to each of you for being here. And also many thanks to our panelists. Uh, thanks for uh, Professor Portney for letting me focus on you for the first 20 minutes. And then uh, for Professors Greer and Bowman for being here and hanging out with us for the panel. And, and to my co-host. As, as always, thanks to, to Justin for organizing this. Thanks to our friends at Downtown Uncorked for providing us the space. Yeah. And right here in downtown Brown, which we enjoy coming out and hanging out at. That's for sure. And we have a couple of other episodes coming up over the next couple of weeks. We'll have another student panel will be our next episode, and then we'll do another live taping in about two weeks with Professor Aaron Snyder, I believe. And we'll talk about the Middle East. And we'll talk about the Middle East. Somebody here knows something about that. At least one do of you? us. Do you? Really? No, not me. Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, well, we'll see how all that goes. Thanks all for right, listening, thank everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you.